0: Hello, and welcome to the Other Minds Podcast. I'm Joseph Bohekian. Other Minds, founded in 1993 in San Francisco by Charles Amerkanian and Jim Newman, is devoted to championing the most original voices in new and experimental music. On Season 2 of the podcast, we're talking with the featured composers from our 27th Other Minds Festival, which will take place November 14th to 19th, 2023, at the Taub Atrium Theater in Gray Area, in San Francisco. Today, I'm joined by Morton Sabotnick. Sabotnick is an American composer who has worked extensively with interactive electronics and multimedia. He is a co-founder of the San Francisco Tape Music Center and one of the founding members of California Institute of the Arts. Sabotnick is one of the pioneers in the development of electronic music and multimedia performance and an innovator in works involving instruments and other media, including interactive computer music systems. Welcome to the podcast, Martin. Thank you. Since we're based in California here and you're a native son of California, I'd like to hear what was life like for you growing up in the Los Angeles area?
1: Uh-huh. Good question. It was great. I hated it. <laughs> 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 I didn't know I hated it. I mean, I hated it, but but um, I I didn't know there was anything else. So I just didn't grow up very happy. My first more or less eight years, seven, eight years, were in um, Boyle Heights. It's now, I guess, coming up, I don't, I don't really know. But at the time, I was in a small section of Boyle Heights that was a Jewish ghetto. And um, <laughs> I don't know how to tell you, but but it was just full of problems. You know, like I went to school, and it was fine for the first four years. And then when I got into school, kids were being beaten up, and there was just violence all over. We We were having—this is 19—in the 30s, we were having gang wars and parking lots, and there would be— you know, notices going up around that you could go if you went The such and such a gang was going to be throwing things at another gang. I, they didn't have machine guns in those days. So that was that was a good sign. But but it was a very, very rough neighborhood at that point in time when I was growing up. At a certain point, we went to New York. We drove to New York. I think we were still in Boyle House when that happened. We drove to New York to um, a family reunion in Long Island in New York, and um, I was flabbergasted in New York. It was so great. I mean, you you walked on the street. you got a cup of coffee and talk to people. <laughs> I, I didn't know you did that. <laughs> I, I thought everything was in, with locked cars driving from one place to another. So I really loved that. That was great. And then at one point when we went to New York I I auditioned, I was a clarinetist and kind of a virtuoso I guess. And I auditioned for Juilliard when we went to New York and um, he accepted me at Juilliard and I told him we didn't have any money so he gave me a scholarship and this was a, an audition at his, at the clarinetist's house and um, when we got done he was hovering over me and by then I was like 15, 16 years old I guess I wasn't in Boyle Heights anymore and I felt him hovering over me and I said um I won't mention his name, but I said, do I owe you something? And he said, yes, my dear. My time is very valuable. $15 an hour. You've been here for 45 minutes. You owe me $7.50. And my dad had given me $10 in case of an emergency. So he gave me $2.50 back. And I drove out feeling like a like a midget. I felt so stupid that I didn't know you paid $15 an hour for an audition. And um, I get into the Lincoln Tunnel on the way back. He was in Philadelphia. And I was got into the the Lincoln Tunnel, and the car stopped. In the middle of the Lincoln Tunnel, and then I had policemen yelling at me and honking, and people yelling at me and honking. I felt like a disaster. And they towed me out. They had to close everybody off, and they, I don't know how they got me out, but they towed me out. And I called my father, and uh, they came and picked me up. And the car, the car couldn't move. It was they put it in a garage, and they had to work with it. So. Um, I was sitting in the back seat and my cousin and my dad were driving the car and um, all of a sudden I thought, you'll see where this is going. It takes me actually to San Francisco. All of a sudden I thought, I didn't know you had to pay, but if you did have to pay, I don't want any part of it. And if you didn't have to pay, I don't want any part of him. So I decided I wasn't going to go to Juilliard, and uh, I felt much better. I had been offered a scholarship at USC. I thought, I'll go to USC. So when I got out of high school, I graduated a year early, and I got out young. And um, I had the scholarship where they gave me a room and board tuition-free, and paid me $100 a month to play in everything. The concert band, the football band, the orchestra, and also I had to play concerts on the road. I went out in the opera orchestra, and I had to play concerts, tumor music concerts of clarinet and and piano to recruit students for USC. So I didn't have time for students. I passed all music the first day and took graduate courses, which I loved, but I couldn't stay in them. And I was substituting for Mitchell Lurie, who was a great clarinetist in Los Angeles in the studios. And I substituted classical concerts and rehearsals when he couldn't make it. They would just call you out. So I knew the, the studio musicians very well. And I complained that I was going to school and I loved it. But I couldn't do anything because they kept taking me out to play. And they said, for $100 a month, He said they said, you should just go out and play in a symphony orchestra. And they said, this guy is here, the conductor of the Denver Symphony. We'll set up an audition time. And so I went and I got the job. So the next summer, I went to Denver. So I get to Denver, and when the orchestra started playing, I met a few people, and one of them was an artist, a violist, and he was an artist, and his wife, she was a violinist. And he took me under his wing so that I could meet people. And we went to Central City, which is a ghost town outside of Denver, where they had these parties that went from Friday night to Monday morning, <laughs> That were all art parties and science and things when interesting people. I didn't realize that that was the beginnings of the beat movement. And I had no idea. I mean, it wasn't called anything. So I never put it together until a few years ago. And they were great parties and they invited, they had a piano there and you could bring music in and play. And so I wrote a piece for violin and viola and it got played. And this young, pianist, composer, got up and played a piece of his, and a young filmmaker got up and showed his films. And that was Stan Brackage, who became you know, the leader of uh, the counterculture of uh, the avant-garde filmmaking, and the other composer was Jim Tinney, and we became the Three Musketeers, and we, we just hung yeah. out together. And at a certain point, I didn't need to go to school because I was playing and I passed all music anyway. But there was a Korean War. So I was going to school. And after two and a half, or I think it was two years or three years, the draft decided I wasn't I wasn't taking this seriously because I wasn't matriculating. I was taking courses in the early morning in the afternoon. I had a full-time job. So I got drafted. And the musicians union in Los Angeles, which I still belong to that, gave People like um, any musician who, who was going to be drafted, you could stay an extra, I think, six months, and they would keep you from going to Korea. You could play in the Presidio in San Francisco, the band. And so I, that's how I got to San Francisco. and <laughs> The rest is history.
0: And so you had this whole career going as a clarinetist. What sparked your shift over to electronics?
1: Okay, that's a good question. The war was over while I was still in the Army in San Francisco, so we're talking early 50s, 54, 55, something like that. And um, the job was you got up in the morning and they would have roll call or something like that. So I got an apartment off base and I began writing a lot of music and I was playing at night and sleeping during the day in the Army. So I got I got known in the new music scene. At a certain point, I got commissioned to do a, a score. I was known as, you know, a young avant-garde composer at those times. So we're talking, the first studios were around 1955, and we're talking right around that time, about a year or so later, Oh, I'm sorry, I missed something. I got a, I got a fellowship to Mills College, went back to Denver, finished my degree, and then came back. But I came back because I had all this stuff. I mean, I was playing music and everything. And so, around 1957 or eight, I got a commission to write a piece for a King Lear production by the. Um, Actors Workshop. They were it in those days. The groups were the Actors Workshop, Anna Halpern's Dance Company, when we got the Tape Center finally going, the Tape Center, and the Meme Troupe. I think they're still going, the San Francisco Meme Troupe. But those were four organizations going. They were really hot. They really had the place going. So the Actors Workshop offered me a commission to do a score for an avant garde real new concept of King Lear and I thought I don't want to write Mendelssohn's music for I'm going to use this new music concrete thing and and bought my first tape recorder with the money from that and it took me a year to finish it but it was considered at the time it was like get the whole production got these very, very I would did it I had even though i didn't have quadraphonic i did it with people moving the the sound around but with changing speakers and everything it was just flying through the room especially the storm scene that was great and it, the whole production got these rave reviews uh it would later take the whole company to new york that's how i got to new york later in 1960 about 10 years later 7 years later so that's how i started and the with the music concrete score i was so it was very hard work Uh, i won't go into the details of what i did because it's going to take forever i don't know if the score was good but you know i've heard it in all those years but it was very dramatic and what i really loved about it more than anything else this is this will get us back to how i got into this whole thing was the fact that i could sit at home and be the composer, the conductor, the everything. And then I didn't have to go out in public. It would just, it would go to public, but I didn't have to go standing in front of people or sitting in front of people. And when the technology, which was just beginning at that point, not the technology of electronic music, but electronic music during that period was essentially an extension of post-Babern, Stockhausen and Bula's Berio and all of these people were doing either an extension of post-Webern or creating a new the radio shows and things like that. But none of them saw this as the end of Webern. They, they, they didn't see it as as a, a big shift. They saw it as an extension, maybe the last extension of fine art symphonic music and at a certain point around 1958, I began to realize that this was not the case, that what was going to happen was that because of the, um, the inexpensive quality of what the new technology was going to be, we were at the brink of a change that would be as fundamentally different for music as the printing press was for the language. That it would be just be available to everyone. But I also realized that it was going to be digital. I was being a close friend of Jim Tenney, he was with Max Matthews and at um ATT, the the early use of the computer. So I knew what they were doing at that point. And so when I realized, everything was going to be digital, but it would be at least 10 to 15, turned out to be close to 30 years later, that it would be available to everybody but when it does become available the language of digital music would be set on the computer by amateurs at best in music and so young people who would people like me who would studying music and doing music and composing music from the time I was i guess about 6 years old putting in 2 to 3 hours a day all those years weren't going to move over to that, to do anything. And that's exactly what happened that, you know, if it was an extension of fine art music, it would have been, but if it became just a popular thing that you could just press a button and it would play some music or, you know, whatever it was going to be, it wouldn't be interesting enough for people to do. So I decided to, even though I was just nobody, I guess nobody is nobody, but I was just a ra- human being, I would start by trying to develop a way to create analog music using analog equipment. There were no synthesizers or anything at that point, but just objects, whatever I could to put together to try to form a way to create a new new music, a new genre that wasn't dependent on traditional musical instruments at all. It wasn't based on music, traditional instruments. I have to insert something here. We found a flute that was 45,000 years ago in a place in Europe somewhere, and they determined that with the whole structure, it was a pentatonic flute. And a pentatonic scale is still today the most prominent scale (laughs) for human beings. That's 45,000 years, and it had to be before then. And recently, they found one 55,000 years ago, and in a cave that had only been touched by Neanderthals. So the Neanderthals had the flute 50,000, 55,000 years ago, when it was a pentatonic scale. So the change in music was great for us over the years, but it remained based on musical instruments. So you can play anything you want, but it's going to be tuned to some scale of some sort. So I thought with this new electronics, you wouldn't have to be there. It was going to be day one, you know, a know, 100,000 years ago, whatever it would, would be, and a new genre of a new kind of a, a new, new music would be there. But I knew it wasn't going to happen, but I felt obligated. Because nobody believed nobody thought this. Not even Ligeti, not even Stockhausen. They they thought it was the new music, but not the new new music, you know, that that didn't put relying. They were basing it on 12-tone post-baverin or music on Krep for new radio. So I just wanted to make an example. And by 1961, I think it was, Ramon and I started the Tape Music Center and the Stan Brackage was there then at that point. He actually made a film of us and it's lost now. But I kept working at it and gave up finally. And in the second year, we moved to to Divisadero Street. And the first thing I did was to put an ad in the paper to get an engineer to help me with this. And I won't go into the whole story, which is, again, very funny. But eventually, in fact, quite soon on... This fellow came in and he seemed to he seemed to know what to do. And he said, "I can do this for you, but it's not the right way to do it." We had come up with some cockamamie idea, and he came in and showed us what we had done. And electronically, he said, "But this is not the way to do it." And he explained control voltage and the whole thing with it uh, that would become before MIDI, but it would become the basis of um everything that happened after that and uh, so i said sounds good to me let's you know let's go with it and that was Don Buchla and we began working on the Buchla 100. When i finally got it i realized i was on really the right track and that what i was doing may not be even i mean if i did it it didn't mean anyone was going to follow me Because by then, I knew Bob Moog, and I knew where he was going. And we actually finished one year before he made his big system. But we were pretty much, you know, side by side in that, that, so we knew each other. And I knew that what I was doing was the right thing to do. And I didn't think I was going to, in fact, I didn't change anything that he's the one who changed everything with a, because he did a black and white keyboard. But I wanted to fulfill my promise to myself that I would show what I knew and what I thought and work it out. And I realized that I knew so little about technology that it would be very easy for me to fall back on the clarinet. I could make a living anyway. I was getting commissions as a composer for instruments and well-known for a young guy. But I didn't think I was that good a composer. I wasn't a Beethoven of the present day. So I figured they won't miss me either. But this is an idea that I should carry out that may be important. And if it's not, my obligation to myself is to go ahead and do it, not just to sit around and say, only if I had done that, this or that and the next thing. So as soon as I could afford to give up the clarinet, because I had two kids at the time and wife, and she was very ill, so I had horrible expenses. So I couldn't give up the clarinet until the company was invited to New York, and I was offered you know, to be the director of the Vivian Beaumont. They were just building it, and the theater at Lincoln Center, and uh, artist in residence. They didn't have to do anything, just be in um, NYU. So that would have given me a a living more than I ever made in one year and I could give up the clarinet and that's when I gave it up and went. You
0: mentioned that part of the appeal of working in the studio in the earlier days was that you could be solitary and do your work and not have to interact with the other people, but you've been doing a lot of live performing recently. So when did you start doing live performances
1: with electronics? My first thought, good question. You were doing good questions. My first thoughts in San Francisco at the very beginning when we first started working, when I started working with Don, I tried to conceptualize this sitting in my studio <laughs> working, and I called it studio art. And the metaphor I used was the painter. You paint and you do all this stuff. And I figured the synthesizer was like, I, I we didn't call it a synthesizer. I called it an analog computer for music. It was neutral, it wasn't a musical instrument. You made everything, including the musical instrument. And I thought of it with the metaphor of the painter like the pellet you know, you'd have a pellet and you a brush and you would brush onto the screen. You'd mix the pellet. That's what we were making the machine. And then it would have. You'd have to have input devices for the machine that would allow you to paint on the screen. It was a pretty good metaphor. And that's how I started with it. And the medium for witnessing it, getting the painting out, wasn't painting in public, but it was buying the thing and putting it in a museum or on someone's wall. and the. Equivalent to that, because this was the time at the beginning of long-playing record, and the museum in the home was the record player. That's what was going to play it, because you you don't send the thing out for someone to play, but you play it on a record. So the job is over in the studio, just like the painter's job. But the painter ends up with one painting on the wall that costs a lot of money. But in the case of this new, new music, it would be the player would be the phonograph player. And those records are cheap, an exact duplicate. So you don't end up with one, but you end up with as many as anyone wants. And the place it goes into the living room or played over the radio. So it seemed like the metaphor, just as I describe it, is pretty good. And so I went for a long time. And I never thought anything would be successful. But when Silver Apples came out, it was really successful, and I was invited out to play places, but I couldn't play. I'd have to bring tape recorders, and i I was I thought, well, the way I can play it is to duplicate my studio. And so I would carry two, three hundred pounds of stuff, literally. I had to have an a, an assistant who would carry things out. And still, it was not as good as what I could do in my studio. And so I kept waiting for the digital stuff to get better and better and better. And in the meantime, it did, but it, we didn't get the home computer. And even then, it was just it didn't do anything. You know, the Macintosh was 450K, I think. So it was, you know, it just, it just wasn't, wasn't there. So I kept watching to see when I could get, reduce my equipment. And then in the meantime, many years later, 2009, I got a commission. I went to multimedia after that, which didn't require quite as much equipment because I had visual stuff and various kinds of stuff. And I went to the ghost pieces, which ended up, I don't know if you know those, but they're they're for performers and performer gets modified in the auditorium. Those things could be done um, without my having to be there with tons of equipment. But I kept looking for this moment when I could play in public and it had to be like my studio. So it wasn't until 2010. And I, right around that time, Bukla Buchlo- came up with is 200E, which is much smaller, and it's partially digital. So that was small enough to be able to travel with. And when we were getting ready to do my opera in Austria, they wanted to attract young people. So they said, why don't you do a performance? I met Lillivan, who I've been working with now for years. Since then, with visuals, I wanted live projections in the, um, in the opera. And they, why don't you and Lillivan go off and do some performances to attract, in, in Austria, to attract young people to your opera? And so I said, okay, well, well, we'll take the 200E. And in the meantime, I took the 200E from Buchla. But in the meantime, I wasn't really interested in it because I had I was so tired of carrying equipment around. I was using a kind of haphazard digital way to, to do music. It wasn't very good, but I could do it was a multimedia kind of thing. So I did it and um, the audience we the first performance we did was at a uh, this is this is around 2009 2010. We did a performance at a um, art museum. And they kept applauding, and I brought the 200E with me with the lights going. I patched it, (laughs) but I didn't play on it. I just did my old stuff, and it was okay, but uh, they loved it, and they kept applauding, and we kept standing up, and I asked Lillivan, I said, what do they want from us? And he whispered in my ear, they want an encore. I said, an encore? What the hell is an encore? I can't do An encore? I could barely do what I did. And I looked and the bukhla was flashing and I thought, okay, let's do an encore. And I decided just to play the, I mean, I knew the was so fucking well that, um, excuse the, the word, but I just knew I could do it. So I said, okay, let's do it. So we played and boy, was I happy. It was so much fun. Playing and they and they we did two encores <laughs> and finally I told the people that, you know thank you very much but we can't do it and I I was really happy with it and so I began doing it with a two hundred E and so we started doing concerts at that point and I could do something like what I was doing before in the meantime computers got better and better and as late as the middle of the I guess just the beginning of the pandemic, computers became so good with the new speed and the um, memory and everything. And then there were soft tube came out with um, Bukla oscillator. I helped them um, test it to make sure it was the same as the analog version of it. And it was, it was exactly the same. And a couple of other modules that they did. And Ableton, I was using Ableton by then, because I had used it in the opera. And um Ableton design is the the most open design of anything I've I've seen. It's really wide open. And we reached the point where I could with my new computer, and then Midi MIDI came out, of course, years before, but it also allowed for people like I forgot his name now from uh, Ableton, but people, he was able to use MIDI integrated into a much more open structure. And to make make a long story short now, because I made it quite long, I'm now able to go off without the 200E. I I have, in Live and Breathe, I have roughly, I think, 40 oscillators. (laughs) You just... You just download one and copy and paste, and you've got 40, and there's no equipment. It doesn't cost a penny to carry or anything. And when Ableton moved to uh, Max Live, you can do your own programming or get interesting programming. And and I have duplicated all the functions of the Buchla and more without any modules. What I wanted to do way back You know, in 1967, what what I dreamed of doing, and I've got it all on my computer, and I've got these little interfaces, Korg interfaces, which were they were, they were $40 each. I've got, I'm looking at them, I've got four of those, and one launcher, and that's it, and my computer. And I can put my voice in it, because in 1968, I had Don built what may have been the first envelope follower, so I could use my voice, not just my fingers as pressure, but my voice. And I still use my voice as a either my voice or say, I'll make a sound that goes, whoa, and I put that into the envelope follower. So when I, when I make a sound and it reaches its zenith, it places it somewhere in the room. I mean, it's wonderful. It's It's exotic. It's things I could never do before, and it doesn't have to be fixed. If I play something, I can record it and make a sample of it and then play it and and change it. (laughs) I mean, it's so much fun. And so As I Live and Breathe is my last piece because it's taken me to the one place I couldn't go. And I just feel at 90, I feel blessed that I've reached the point where – Finally, from 1961 to when I was i was not even 30 yet. But it's a long time, and I feel really blessed that I'm able to do it. It's been developing. The, the version I do in San Francisco is going to be, I'm, I'm touring with it. I started in, um, uh, I've, I've already done performances of it, but for almost two years now. But it's been changing, and it's it's going to be the new the latest version of I, I will do. I'll start in the Venice Biennale, kicking that off in October, and and end up actually I end up in San Francisco.
0: We'll also be screening a documentary about your life and work called Sobotnik: Portrait of an Electronic Music Pioneer on November fourteenth at Gray Area. Did you enjoy the process of? being part of making that documentary?
1: Yeah, I took it as part of, um, I have to add something. When I was eight years old, I found a couple of books in the garage my parents had put there that hadn't been touched. And I, for some reason, took a book by Epictetus and Aurelius. Well, anyway, it was two books on Stoic philosophy from the Greeks. (laughs) I don't know what the fuck I did that for, but I did it. And somehow, I came away from that as understanding that you. I understood that Stoic philosophy is a little like existentialism. And for an eight-year-old kid who didn't know anything about any of that, it was existential. And it gave me the sense that you create who you are, and you follow... Principles of the person you've created. So the example was that Epictetus had a beard. This lingered in my mind, for some reason it was not very, not very high-tuton philosophy. But he said, if you I chose to be a philosopher and my beard is my symbol. And if you said, We're going to kill you if you don't shave your beard off, he said, I would choose to be killed because. I am who I am, uh, which is Popeye, but but um, but profound still. And that was very profound to me. And so uh, I decided what that meant is that you decide what you can do, the meaning of life is something you invent. And so what I invented was the meaning of being a human being is to find out what you can do to do it the very best you can, and continue doing it the very best you can and offer it to other people and share it. That stuck with me to this day for some reason. It just meant a whole lot. It still does. I don't know if that's what he meant, but but it's what my life has been. Yeah, so the documentary is part of that, it's part of sharing. So their documentary is not finished because I refuse for it to be finished. And because I'm still alive, and there's still things, we're not talking, it's not an autobiography, other than what I just did. It's, I'm not giving you the secrets of my life. I'm giving you the, I'm sharing with you and your audience, my invented life that I'm sharing, the the work with music. And the documentary is that. So I've been correcting it. And um, they had to refilm. One of them is coming to film me in Venice so he can he can get that part of it in and it'll be a PS at the end I say at the end I guess this is it I'm retiring now I've done all I can and then all, all this happened right I started the documentary for so I said we have to we can't stop there so he's going to do a version that he's cutting that won't be shown in San Francisco because it'll he, he has to do it after all these concerts so the documentary i'm really happy with because it's it is exactly what i said it's i was picked up as you know by the younger generation from electronics and what i do isn't anything like what they do but they recognize that and it's getting closer and closer to their really understanding what i do and they're they're the questions i'm getting from audiences and things are much closer to what I was doing. And it shows that experience of the coming out and doing things. I'm still using, I'm using portable buclo in most of those because they, the early filming was it in places where I, I was bringing the 200E, which I could do something meaningful with. So yeah, I'm pleased with what they've been doing with it. They're doing a really nice job.
0: You can hear Morton Sobotnik's "As I Live and Breathe," performed by the composer with Berlin-based video artist Lillivon, at Other Minds Festival 27 on November 16th at the Taub Atrium Theater in San Francisco. You can also see a screening of the documentary Sabotnik, Portrait of an Electronic Music Pioneer on November 14th. 2023 at Gray Area. Thank you, Morton, for talking with me today, and thanks everyone for listening. This has been an episode of the Other Minds podcast, brought to you by Other Minds. Our 27th festival is November 14th to 19th, 2023, at the Taub Atrium Theater in Gray Area in San Francisco.